So welcome back to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Now, if you're watching on YouTube or on my website, thanks so much for being a part of the Menopause Movement. I want to remind you, our listeners, that we are gearing up for our next beta course, all about understanding your hormones and managing your menopause. Now, this course is designed to help you leave behind mental misery and start to live the Menomate way. The Menomates are happy, content with their lives, not bothered by menopause symptoms, and many actually fit into their pre-menopause clothes again. Applications will open soon. The course is valued at $1,000, but it will be at no charge to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials. And to be among the first to know when we open up the application, simply sign up at bit.ly forward slash beta weight. Now today, I'm so excited about today's guest. I have known her for the past six years, but it's been really a very superficial level. And I've been trying to get her on the podcast for months, but life kept getting in the way. I've always held a deep admiration for her because of her courage to become the woman she has been called to be. And I've, I've always wanted to bring her into a deeper relationship. And just over the past, I would say, three to six months, maybe, maybe even shorter, maybe even the last month after the pandemic got started and whatnot, we've become friends. And it's so exciting to watch her and kind of help her and, and then on top of that, learn from her. So I'm really excited. Today, we welcome Dr. Siri Chand Khalsa to the podcast. Dr. Khalsa has had a lifelong interest in utilizing delicious plant-based food as a basis for health. Now, after completing her residency in internal medicine at the Mayo Clinic, she has done advanced studies in nutrition, botanical medicine, and Ayurveda, which further reinforced her understanding that good nutritional choices are the foundation for health. Serving as both an integrative medicine PCP and consultant to other medical practices, she has dedicated her time and energy to promoting an increased understanding of the link between long-term health and the food choices we make. Through her research and her personal journey, she's adopted a fully plant-based focus to the classes that she teaches as well as recommends to patients. This journey has also included a focus on sustainable practice of bringing healthy food to all. Currently, she's working on bringing a teaching kitchen that supports the hands-on experience of learning how to sustainably cook and consume food in a manner that promotes vitality. During our podcast, we talk about her spiritual transformation. And we get deep into different areas in our conversation about spirituality and as it relates to society, mood, and food. We talk about how she was looking for a more experiential version of spirituality and how that helped to lead her into the, her current life. And this particular part really resonated for me as I feel I have been on a similar journey for the past few years. We discussed her visit to India and what brought her to study and excel in Ayurvedic medicine. We talk about how food can be a catalyst to our spiritual growth and its role in contentment. We talk about her love of bacon as a vegetarian and what you need to do to start incorporating more plants into your diet because plants are really important. She gives us a great low-cost tip to use glassware instead of plastic that has dangerous hormone-interrupting chemicals that that are there in many plastics. And we talk about food as medicine and as a determinant of mood, attitude, emotions, and well-being. Stay to the end to find out what exactly Ayurveda is and how it got started. 
And at the end of the episode, make sure you visit drmichellegordon.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find the show notes, plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoy the episode, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you're always the first to know when each episode is released. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for all the five-star reviews. If you haven't left a review yet, please take the time to review the podcast. This helps more women to find it and get the help they need during the disruption of menopause. No one should have to go it alone. And thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. And let's just get straight to Dr. Siri Chan Khalsa. Dr. Khalsa, welcome to the Menopause Movement. Thank <laughs> you. I'm so glad to have you here on the Menopause Movement podcast. We have this thing that we do when we have our Zoom meetings with the ladies, and we do this, and it's really fun. And so, and so Dr. Khalsa, she was our guest last week in our coaching call, and it, it was really very well received, and so we brought her back for the podcast. So I met you at Arizona Center for Integrated Medicine, the Andrew Wiles Fellowship, and I was a fellow for about five minutes mm -hmm. and decided it just wasn't for me. But one of the things that, that I noticed about you, and this was, I want to say in 2014, and maybe even earlier, maybe 20, I mean, Valerie, my wife, graduated, I think, in 2012. So I went into the 2014 class. So it was like, it was watching you like when you were teaching that 2010 to 2012 class. And then, and then in 2012, I think I went to one of our residentials and then I stopped being a fellow. There's something about you that I, I always really looked at and looked up to. And that was, I've never seen somebody smile so much. So I kind of want to start with that. I mean, because I remember walking past you and not really even taught, you know, after you taught your class and, and, and just walking past you and just seeing this light, you just always, I've never seen anybody smile so much. <laughs> well, here's the smile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, when I made this, so I always like to say I grew up completely Western in a suburb of Washington, D.C., playing soccer, watching Oprah, eating mac and cheese, and Lipton's suit, like, <laughs> talk to me about my childhood. Yeah. And I, you know, had a, I always like to say I just had this whole perfectly normal suburban, whatever normal is, life. And when I went through this really deep spiritual transformation, and I changed my name, and I put a turban on, and I made this big shift based on an inner vision, inner call, I realized that I needed to smile to disarm people because it usually the look I get when people first meet me is, uh, what is here? <laughs> right. Well, let's, I mean, let's just talk a little bit about your, your spiritual transformation. Let's, you yeah. know, I, we, I've never really heard that story. And so I'd love to, you're a Sikh, right? Yes. And that's why you wear the tur turban. That's why I wear the turban. So uh, maybe we can start with, because I don't really know, you know, wh how diverse, down, diversely, yeah. <laughs> well, mo mostly I want to, I think we should start with like, because I don't know what people know, you know, I mean, we're, we're a pri primarily Christian country, Christian to a detriment, I think we, we talked about that before on the podcast. In your case, you know, I want to know how you kind of went from a Judeo-Christian, Judeo-Christian kind of 
belief system that you were probably brought up with to actually going to Sikh and uh, which is very, very, very Eastern. Yeah. So I, my, I grew up in a very interesting household. My father was Jewish and my mother was pretty devout Presbyterian. But Presbyterians okay. are pretty heart-centered for the most part. I think yeah. they're not, they're just good, they're decent people. And, you know, every Sunday, my dad would read the paper and my mom would march me and my brother off to church. But even in those teachings, I felt the, the call of like, where's the experience? Mm. Where's the experience of my soul? So I would hear these kind of components and it was, it was really interesting to kind of look okay. at that. And I, over time, I realized like, I want more than just a didactic, you know, I would pray and I would be in church and there'd be these moments where I was like, oh, everybody's praying for a really long time, but I would look up at the ceiling and I'd be counting like the, the pieces of wood in the ceiling of the church. It's 682. Don't ask me why I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> this is the random things my brain commits to memory. And when I went away to college, which I think is true for a lot of people, I had a deep sort of first time out of the home first time out of the purview of my parents' kind of guidance. And I just decided I wanted to explore for whatever the reason. I don't know. And I started taking, at that time, I wasn't as much into yoga, but I started taking a Tai Chi and Qigong class. And it revolutionized me. Like I realized that this experience of myself in a state of relaxation was so novel. And it was something I'd been craving. So for me, there is, and my husband is a chaplain and acupuncturist, he calls it the science of sort of spirituality. Like mm. there's actual physiologic things that happen to our ability to sort of relate to higher parts of ourselves or the non-mundane when we're relaxed. And so I, it really just sparked an interest. And at that time I was pre-med and I was kind of giving all kinds of things thought. I was like, this, this sucks, basically. <laughs> like, the pre-med pre courses? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, pre-med is hard. It's really hard. And I had gone to a magnet, one of the premier high schools in the country for math and science. So I had been mm -hmm. tracking for an advanced STEM career for since I was in sixth, seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And you know, somewhere in the middle of that beginning journey in, in college, I said, you know what, I'm going to take time out for art and for exploration. So I took a semester off, which actually ended up being four years between medical school and college, which I would uh, encourage any like pre-meders that are tuning into your podcast to know, like it's okay to honor your, your journey. It's yeah, totally absolutely. okay. It's going to work out. Living proof. <laughs> yeah, everything works out. Everything it, works out. I mean, that's, it always that's proof. Yeah. So then the abridged version here. So then I ultimately sort of in those four years between college and medical school, spent time visiting naturopathic schools, acupuncture schools, just figuring out like what really resonated for me. There was a call to sort of be in a healing capacity with people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what that looked like. And, you know, in hindsight, there was just such a strong science foundation that some of the other pathways don't incorporate as much that I, I sort of said, well, I can't just let that go. I have that discerning. I'm ultimately 
at the base of everything a scientist. I investigate, I learn, I apply, I revise, repeat. And so I ultimately married another doctor at that time. And, you know, we went through all our training together. And when we finished our training, we realized we didn't have a lot in common. And, you know, I don't think that's an uncommon story either. And so, no. And so when that happened, it was actually very sad. And for me, I, it caused me a lot of emotional pain because I was really invested in that working. And when the marriage ended, I actually went to India for what I thought might be permanently at that point, because I was kind of like, well, I'm not so sure how I feel about Western medicine. I've been doing it for 15 years now, you know, 10 years, and I'm in a lot of emotional pain. I really want to just figure this out. So I went first to South India to study Ayurveda, which is a a deep science that evolved. It was the medical system of India and still Mm -hmm. to a large extent is present there. And then I went to- How long were you, how long did did it take you to learn all the Ayurveda? Well, I like to say lifetimes, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's a belief system. <laughs> you know, in this lifetime, then. In this lifetime, <laughs> you know, I spent, so skipping ahead a little bit, I actually spent three years off clinical practice studying Ayurveda. So it was a okay. deep, deep, deep dive for me. But then I went to North India, where Amritsar, which is where the Sikh faith sort of is grown out of. And I had really profound spiritual experiences of, a deep sense of knowing that like, oh, this is home. It's the best way I could explain it. I felt like, Uh oh, wow, I'm home. This feels like home. But it did confront a lot of my social conditioning about who my identity was, who I thought I was. And so, you know, it took me three or four years to really start shedding everything that I had been conditioned to believe that I was. I was this married woman. I had this name. I had this medical degree. I had these credentials. I had these, this is my identity. And, you know, this universal intelligence said, we're going to mix that up a little. (laughs) I think that's, I think that's really important because like what we were talking about in the beginning and how, when, when you can really look at all the beliefs that you have and then examine whether they're still serving you. And we tend to think that the things that, that our parents tell us are true but, you know, again, I, I, I love this analogy and I do it almost every time on the podcast. You know, when I pick up this pen and I drop it, it's going to fall. And it's going to fall at a measured rate. We know exactly what that is. That's 9.8 meters per second squared. That's a law, right? But Jesus says the savior of the world is a belief, right? And that may or may not be true because it's not true for you and it may not be true for me and it may not, you know, it may be true for other people and, and not to get too, too much into religion because I know this is going to upset people. I, Christ came and he was great and he did a lot of really great things. And I, I'm not, I don't want to like piss people off about, about, yeah. you know, religion, but at the same time, you know, the fact that you were able to look at, you know, the, the Presbyterian things that you learned even while looking at the ceiling. Yeah, and counting the boards. And what did you say, 648? 682, I think. 682, okay. And, you know, and then, and then say, well, is this, is this true for me? I mean, I think that this works every, in any aspect of our lives, you know? I mean, the reason why we don't make the changes that we want to make in our lives is because that we're stuck in our beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so when we can really, really make, you know, take a look at those beliefs and say, well, you know, I mean, 
I know, you know, we're, we're going to get to talking about food in a minute, but you know, one of the things I like to say is you don't lose a hundred pounds in a day. You lose a hundred pounds by starting to be the person who's a hundred pounds lighter today. Mm. Oh, I love <laughs> yeah. that. I'm not, yeah. I love that. Yeah. So you, you start, you start acting as that person. Now you start making those decisions. Now you start looking at things that you think are food and you say, Oh, that's not food. That's not going to serve me, you know, and becoming more mindful. And then you change your beliefs around food. I mean, that's, that's how you lose a hundred pounds. You know, you start moving right. more, you stop eating sugar, things like that. And so when it comes to like for you with this big transformation in your beliefs and, and these are your religious beliefs and your personal beliefs and everything. I mean, that is such, such a major transformation. I mean, how long did it take you to go from, you know, Western gear, wet garb to yeah. wearing a turban? About five years. Yeah. It yeah. was not overnight. And like you said, that's why I love what you said. It was like, what I wanted was to be a person who had more peace within who I was. Right. And so, you know, medicine, again, my condition belief was bourgeois, you know, I, you know, I had all the things, you know, like degree, husband, finance, homes, yeah. but dang, when it fell apart, I was like, well, none of that actually had the depth of meaning and gave me this inner link to happiness or peace or con really for me, it was contentment. I got less mm -hmm. ambitious as I've gotten older. I'm like, I don't need to be joyful or happy. I'll take content, you know, I'll take content any day. And yeah. so, I mean, I like, I like happiness. I think happiness is a choice. I, I, I choose to be happy. I choose to see love, you know, I mean, I'm working through of course in miracles right now. And, uh -huh. you know, it's all about, about, you know, choice and seeing differently and, you know, understanding that nothing has meaning other than what we give it. And, you know, I mean, these are all really deep metaphysical kinds of things. And so were you a vegetarian before you well, started? So here's the really interesting story. Yes. So I like to say that, so my mom grew up in Iowa and she grew up in a city that had meatpacking plants. And so for some reason, her high school decided that a really fun field trip would be to go to the meatpacking plant. And mm -hmm. my mom, that was sort of a game changer. She was like, oh, she, they yeah. went to the slaughterhouse. Yeah. As a field trip in high school. Yeah. I mean, my father was a cattle rancher. My grandfather was a cattle rancher. My father grew up on a cattle farm. So I was around auctions and, you know, we were, we were at the, I mean, you know, I watched pigs get born and cows get born and I watched them get, I mean, for, you know, for me, I, you know, I, I chose to be a surgeon, right? I mean, you know, I got a knife just sitting here on my desk. I, I you know, and there's a scalpel in my, you know, in my thing. So it's, you know, so, so I'm very comfortable. I mean, maybe I just was always very comfortable with that because I never yeah. thought that was a big deal, but it might've been how it was presented, you know? Yeah. Who knows? Her, All right. So she, she was like, I'm not eating meat anymore. That was like her <laughs> point for whatever the reason. Yeah. And really from that point forward, she ate meat for a bit. My, my father and her lived in Europe. He was in Vietnam. They mm -hmm. had four six years or eight years, I forget which it was, in Europe where he was stationed in Wiesbaden, which is where I was born, where they traveled all over Europe. They loved to eat. And this is partly where I think my food vibe comes from, just their yeah. love of traveling and eating and exploring. And so um, we grew up where my dad was like, 
kind of like ZZ Top and barbecue. And mom was like, oh, I don't eat meat. Again, you know, there's always been these push-pulls in my background of like one parent doing one thing and the other doing another. But in time in college, when I started studying these other things, I went into a plant-based diet. And many of the phases of it for me were really predicated by the fact that I just love bacon. And so I would have these long stretches of plant-based eating. And then there'd be some situation where bacon or sausage was present. And I'd be like, I just, I just can't do it. I can't resist you for another second. <laughs> Sorry for all the people that love the little piggies and the animals and all of that. But, you know, I, then when I was in, you know, in my first marriage, we definitely had a meat-based life. But towards the end of it, as I was sort of rekindling my interest in yoga, I started back to that plant-based. And so since about 2007, 100% plant-based. And okay. when I more formally adopted my Sikh values, part of that, it's sort of an orthodox kind of pathway where you agree as part of that decision, you won't eat meat, any meat or you know, anything that had a mom, basically. Anymore. Right. Or anything with a face. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so... so so do you miss bacon? I do. I really yeah. do. And you know, I really miss... Tempa bacon isn't the same. I know. It's just yeah. nothing. There's eggplant bacon. There's carrot bacon. There's the, nothing is the same as a BLT. I mean, it just... Yeah, that's true. I do t- uh, BLTs, like a lettuce tomato, and, and that works. But, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I just think about it and I... I I never evangelize my view as a superior one, but I do believe that some of it is that I'm making a choice that there's less suffering for another being. But again, I know not everybody shares that view and I'm not trying to convince anybody to believe that, but that's the framework I use now when I have a craving for bacon. It's like, okay, you know, it's the, the way that, and I'm sure you talk about this in your course, doing commercial animal farming is pretty challenging in terms of its nutrient value and you know coming from your background you know there's better ways to do this yeah well we you know we we do consume meat and we but we you know we go to sustainable farms that are local and we you know make sure that it's grass-fed and you know as a matter of fact we there's this uh local place called pete's meats uh here in the hudson valley not too far from us, who brought us a uh, delivery and the meat is delicious. But we also support a local farm called Glenwood, which trains, you know, seed incubators and and trains people in sustainable farming. And so, and that's a, like a nonprofit farm. I really see that the regenerative agricultural movement, that's really bringing that integrated farm system back online. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you know, I, it's kind of funny because I really do see a big pair. I mean, we're both doctors, right? You're internal medicine, I'm surgery. And we both have, have left medicine for, for probably similar reasons. It, working as a doctor in America right now is morally challenging. And if you're working for somebody else, you know, it, it, you're a cog in a machine. And if you're working for yourself, it's impossible to get paid. And so, you know, pivots are going to continue to happen. But when you look at what happened with if you remember the factory farms taking over, you know, the small farmers, I mean, it's, it's, it feels the same to me. It's, mm-hmm. There's so many parallels to, you know, corporate medicine and corporate farming and what happened. I and, love that. I'd never thought about that. 
And, and then, you know, when you look at the obesity rates in America and how it's so, it's so related to uh, the, the corporate yeah. farm takeover, you know. Did you see the movie The Biggest Little Farm? No. Oh, you'd love this movie. And I think your listeners would love it too. I want to say it's free on Netflix for those that have it. But, okay. oh my gosh, it's the story. It's just such a compelling story that an L.A. couple moves there. They get some seed funding and they move to a small, desolate plot of land and they turn it into this oasis. And it's their struggles. You know, there was a fire one year, but they bring in these biodiversity permafarming experts who mm. teach them how to create sustainable rotating crops, not mono, you know, like where we do corn, soy. It's yeah. like a very biodiverse combination of plants and they do tours now. They're, they're it's, I'm so such great. a fan of what they're doing. And well, we'll make, we'll make sure we hook up that, you know, that link in the show notes. You know, I've, I've done a lot of tours. You know, I used to drink a lot of wine. I don't drink wine so much anymore because I find that it makes me feel crappy. And so every once in a while I have a glass of wine, but not it's, it's like maybe once or twice a year now. I used to drink almost every day. And we, we've done some wine tours in Napa Valley and in Sonoma. And the, the, the ones that I really like the most are the biodynamic farms. You know, the oh, ones yeah. that, that, are, that are like they're doing natural pesticides with other pests. And, you know, not pests, but other insects, yeah. you know. And they're, um, they're growing. Ravens and, you know, like. Yeah, yeah ladybugs, ravens. And, and they're growing, you know, flowers next to their grapes, you know. And, and so I've been there during, yeah. during se season where they're, where they're, you know, harvesting. And I've been there during the, the heat of summer. You know, it's, it's, it's very interesting because when you see that and then they're growing food as well. These, these real biodynamic farms, they're not just growing grapes, but they're growing food mm. and doing that as well. So that's, that's pretty interesting, the whole farm movement. And do you have a home farm or at least a garden? Well, I, I ha so I had to move. What happens when you leave medicine is sometimes you have yeah. to scale down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, keeping it real here. So I had it and I had never lived big. I always knew that I could never work full time. So in my medical career, I never worked more than 24 hours of patient care per week because mm. that was my absolute max of where I could maintain any semblance of balance. And even at that, I mean, and I think that has to do with the deep dive that I do with people that the system just has no capacity to embrace or understand the value of. So, you know, you're, you're racing the clock to give this sort of lifestyle prescriptive process. But I had six garden beds, raised beds in my last house, and I loved it. Oh, my gosh. I, it was the first time I'd ever had a garden just because I all the training and all the moving and I was a bit of a nomad. I'd never really settled roots anywhere. And so being in this home, I hired a gardener because... I just had no idea. And he worked magic, man. He just. Yeah, the gardeners in. are really good. They do. Oh, they yeah. Do when they do, and his particular focus was urban gardening. So he had all the right dirt and he had this formula and he had all the starts. And within the first season, I had this a literal farmer's market coming out of these raised beds herbs, lettuce, green, bitter greens like Swiss chard and kale and artichokes and, and okra. And I was like, I would go out in the morning and on my social media, there's some older posts. I'd be like, 
la 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 you know in the garden <laughs> there's all these like bright halos around me and yeah. I'm just like oh I couldn't be any happier like I've yeah. never just been as blissed out as I was now I have a little patio garden that's got a lot of fresh herbs in it and I we want to do like the urban patio jungle sort of thing and you know, as things move forward and there's some capacity to explore that, I'll probably document my journey with that because I think well, it'd that's be great. Fun. Yeah, that's great. So, so I have eaten some of your food. What, one thing that I found, there's two things that you said in the course that really stuck with me. And, and one was that something you said multiple times, and that was don't drink your calories. And that, that stuck with me. I mean, I've never gone back to look at my notes, but I just, I, I remember that, that the course with you was one of the highlights for me and having all those diverse flavors that you were able to bring out. I don't eat grains, generally speaking, but I mean, when you're a vegetarian, you kind of have to eat grains. Yeah. But, you know, for somebody who's looking to say, transfer to more of a plant-based diet, and even if they're looking to add, I mean, one of the things that we teach in our program when, when people leave their minnow misery behind and become minnow mates and start living the minnow mate way, uh, we teach that you want, you want to have more vegetables, you know, and if you're going to eat meat, that's fine. I, I mean, I, because I believe, I mean, I, I'm a scientist too. And we know from evolution that meat is, you know, part of our evolution. So if somebody wanted to start and, you know, there's so many, there's so many roadblocks. I mean, you've got these, these manufactured foods where people are saying it's vegan, but it's filled with harmful, poisonous things like vegetable oil or this, you know, that, that weird cheese, right? Cheese that like might taste good on your palate, but then will like wreak havoc with your intestinal system or, mm -hmm. you know, all, all these non-nutritive things. So how does somebody increase their vegetables? I guess is the question. Well, you know, there's a, so this is a really great question and I have a couple of theories about this. And my main theory is that the first thing you have to do is to be sure your kitchen process is, is solid. And by that, I mean, I think you have to have a decent sized four or six quart with a steamer and you need a slow cooker. So if you're going to eat vegetarian, those are two things that make your life infinitely easier. That's number one. Number two is that meal prep is amazing. So if you can go to the store once a week and prep your vegetables and put them into containers in the fridge so that you have your veggies ready to go, that's number two. Those mm -hmm. two things right there actually really change things for people because if you have cut up veggies in the fridge, because I find the biggest issue right now for people is time. Mm -hmm. There's not enough time in the day because they're a little behind on their planning. They come into a meal and there's been no advanced planning for it. It's like, okay, I'm going to intuitively check in. I'm hungry. Yes, I need, I need a protein. I need a vegetables. Okay, cool. Then it's like, how hungry am I? And how quickly do I need to accomplish that goal before the second or third thing I need to be doing starts happening? So we've sort of lost the culture of eating and sharing meals, which I just accept at this point. I mean, time out, yes, please cultivate that. But I'm also a realist. Like I'm Go not eat in France just once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just once. See what that experience yeah. is like. Yeah. So if you've done like if you've gone to the grocery store and you've cut up carrots and broccoli and cauliflower and squash, and 
it'll last three to five days in a sealed container in the fridge. And I have glass because I prefer not to use plastic due to, you know, the phthalates. Among disruptors. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I store them in my veggie drawer cut up. I also use ball jars, you know, with the lids. They're mm-hmm. super affordable. So sometimes people say, oh, those glass containers, they're so expensive. Just throw it into ball jars. These are my, you know, you, yeah, you can get the big ones too, you know? Yeah. Just canning jars. And exactly. yeah, we use those, we use those for uh, green smoothies. We use those for teas. We use those for all sorts of things. Yeah, Pick, and pickled pickled vegetables. Yeah. 10 bucks for 10 of them. It's there's, they're not like yeah. investing in those glassware sets, which, right. you know, then you lose the lid and That's you're like, great ah, tip. <laughs> it's so lame when you lose the lid to one of those. Cause you left them. <laughs> but the, yeah. the idea here with, Adding more veggies is that if you have this steamer insert, when you're getting your other dishes going, just start some water and boil some and throw the veggies into the steamer insert. I Nutrient-wise and cooking-wise, steaming seems to be the one that holds the most nutrients in the food. And then when you're done, you can flavor it with spices or whatever, whatever you use. We do like hemp, ground hemp seed dressing, olive oil, whatever your point of view around saturated fats is, whether you use a little ghee or coconut oil, you know, everybody's got a different point of view. And I, I again, don't stand on an island here and say, oh, you can't eat those things because fat adds flavor. It adds texture. There's healthy fats for sure. Certainly the ones that nature makes in nuts and seeds. And I love olive oil. So this is my personal opinion that those are fine to incorporate. I agree with you. It's so, not, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think we can go back to a little bit of science here and yeah. say that nature doesn't make bad fats, and, and that's including animal fats. The main issue is that you want to make sure that if you're, if you're using animals, that they're coming from a good source, not a big factory farm source where right. there's a lot of antibiotics and that sort of thing. And well, even, even dairy, which is, you know, controversial, I don't advocate dairy because it, we're the only species that eats another species milk, which is, you know, when you look at it that way, it's like, can you imagine going to a, going to an ice cream store and having it be human milk ice cream? (laughs) That's not something that appeals to me for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So that's one thing that I like to, I like to bring up is like, you know, we can look at it. I mean, and, and, you know, the, then the keto, the keto guys will say, oh yeah, have cream in your coffee. It's okay. And then, and calories don't matter when it comes to keto. And then, you know, people are going eating keto and they, they'll lose a little bit of weight and then they'll plateau because they're eating too many calories. And so it's, it, diet is a really, really tricky, tricky subject because there's a lot of beliefs that come up with diet. Oh yeah. And you know, my yeah. year in the years of working with people, I find that if you can introduce new habits and not focus on the habits that we as scientists or clinicians or coaches or whatever capacity, you know, nutritionist, whatever we think they may not be doing right based on our study and our, our relationship to the science, I don't find that works for people telling them you're doing this wrong. It's more like, listen to your body. Are you energized? Are your bowels moving normally? What's your fo- mental focus? What's your mood? Are you sleeping okay at night? Because food can actually impact all those things. And, you know, do you feel like you're inflamed all the time? You know, like dial it back and say, oh, I had vegan cheese. I had vegan pizza. And I feel like, you know what, you know, like, yeah. And, you know, back to dairy, a lot of the dairy farms give them not their natural food. So it actually affects the fatty acid composition of the milk. Mm. So 
the grass fed is just so key because when they're given grains, it doesn't give that omega three ratio that we that's more desirable. And same well, with it's the just, that I mean, dairy, dairy. I mean, I listen. I think I think that it's it's funny because as a mother, I think that dairy farming is probably the most cruel industry that there is because they they keep the cows pregnant. And then they take the babies away, right? And the, the males end up being veal and the females end up being, you know, more dairy cows. And so, and, and that's kind of funny. I mean, I guess that's really juxtaposed with the fact that I eat meat because I do. But I mean, I, when I go to dairy farms, I feel sad. You know, I've been to dairy farms even in France and, and it just makes me feel sad. Well, it's interesting. I was at a goat farm. So I used to think, well, dairies, you know, go they treat the goats better. This was okay. You know, this was when I was more of a lacto vegetarian. And I went to a goat farm in Hawaii and they were like, Yeah, we kill the goats when, you know, when they pass their mark or we take the baby away, you know, to keep the milk production. And I was like, Yeah, no more goat milk for moi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It just seemed like you said, I'm, I didn't have children, but that mothering side of me was like, oh, you take the babies? Yeah, they have to. Yeah, they yeah. have to. Yeah. And, and, and it's just, you know, it's animal husbandry. And so it, it's kind of like how it wasn't hard for me to see a slaughterhouse as a child, but it was hard for your mother. You know, I, I think we just, we're just going to filter things differently, right? Yeah. It but different. I want to I go back to you talking about food and mood. Because, you know, Hippocrates, going back to Hippocrates, let food be thy medicine, right? And I recently had a, a really very depressed episode. And, and I don't get depressed. I'm usually very, very happy. And so my energy was wrong. Everything was wrong. And when I checked in with my higher self to say, what is going on here? It was like, look at what you ate. I was like, oh, I forgot. And it's easy for me to say things like, I don't smoke pot because I don't like how it makes me feel. That's right. easy. That's, that's like, it's like a no brainer. It's like, it's like somebody smokes pot around me and I'm like, enjoy it. It's not for me. Right. All right. And, and then I struggled with alcohol because it was like, I feel good when I'm drinking it. And then the next day I don't. And it's, you know, it was like this big push pull. And so I finally said, okay, I'm not going to drink and I'm going to see how I do. And now I'm, you know, and I'm always like, I'm struggling with my weight back and forth, whatever, but I haven't really been a, I've, I've connected it before, like really like kind of, it's, it's like these, these threads of connection, but mm. this time it was like this huge connection of like, when you eat like that, I don't like it and I'm going to feel shitty. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. And, you know, I think this is something that there's a psychiatrist, Drew Ramsey, whose work is really intriguing. He's a he's kind of your keto paleo mindset, and he you know believes in grains and greens. But if you're in, if anyone's interested in doing a deep dive beyond what we're going to talk about here, his work mm -hmm. is really compelling because he looks at as a psychiatrist, he's looking at mental, emotional, and I believe you know higher self, spiritual states that are mm -hmm. linked to diet and the science of it. What I learned about it came from my study in Ayurveda, believe it or not. Yeah, and so, I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> ancient I mean, medicine. Ancient medicine. So what, you know, what Ayurveda is, is a science. It translates literally as the science of life. And it's like, wow, that's a big bite. What the heck does that mean? But basically what happened is that over 
millennia, the human condition was observed and notes were taken. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, that's not so hard to comprehend. And as that happened, patterns were seen. Patterns started to emerge. And then people started talking about the patterns. And this is before we had lab testing and understanding of genetics, but their relationship to the internal milieu was inextricably linked to our mental, emotional, spiritual state. We have this way that we've separated the science from this, like how could, how could food and, and this choice link to my feeling of contentment or my feeling of anger or my feeling of joy? And in Ayurveda, there's a really profound link in terms of what we call the Agni. So Agni is this if you think about, it's called, basically translates as the digestive fire, the fire of awareness that exists within the body and particularly within digestion. And when Agni is not at par, mood can never really be there without additional, at where we're content and happy and peaceful. And so understanding our unique blueprint for that and eating for that and supporting that and knowing how to bring it back into balance when we don't do that is the cornerstone of how Ayurvedic treatment plans work. And we have these newer fields called nutrigenomics and we're studying the microbiome, but nobody's dialed it in from my point of view because I'm looking at all of that. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm, I've done a deep dive everywhere. I'm like, I'm a scuba diver. I'm like, right, yeah. let's get in there. You know? Right, right. And so nobody's really created that synergy of how the digestive fire, the Agni, relates to mood. But what I do tell people, which I think is what you did, is like notice the dips in your mood and mm -hmm. trace it back three to five days and come forward and say, is there a leak? And can you go even farther and say, well, I bought this new, for, for the community I'm part of, oh, I bought this new dairy milk. Boy, it tastes really good but it's actually really high in refined carbohydrates just by the nature of how they made the milk. And it causes this kind of up down sugar spike that, you know, when mm. you dip, sometimes new dips when the sugars crash. And so, you know, it's like, Oh, I've been drinking that milk for a month and I haven't been sleeping as well. And I'm crying at like Hallmark commercials and dogs in the park. <laughs> You know, I mean, you sure like, that's not menopause. Yeah, but, <laughs> okay, really. but you know, that's the thing is I had to pay attention to that. And, and yeah. I think, you know, food blogs don't always look at emotional states, but good ones do. They really do. They say, you know, what was your resilience? What was your sense of capacity to come back? Because none of us can deny that life comes at us. I mean, I sometimes wish I'm like, just this bubble. I make this bubble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I've, I've got my happiness and I'm all good in this bubble, but then I try to come out into the world and all that happens is my bubble gets destroyed. Well, turns out science says we actually need each other. We need that bubble and we need that resilience when things don't feel good or feel right to come back into the states of balance. And so resilience is a big one for me in terms of the modern world that we live in. Like, how can food give you resilience? What a random, weird concept. Well, I don't know. I mean, you, you know, you start talking about DNA, right? And we start, start talking about how, how our DNA will take the DNA of whatever it is we eat and incorporate it. 
And so when you eat things that are not natural, when you eat things that are coming out of a package or that are manufactured, you know, fast food that's scientifically created just to make us want more, that's going to incorporate into our genetics and it's also going to affect our microbiome. And so for those of you who don't know, the microbiome is all of the bacteria that live inside of us. And what's really interesting about what I've learned, I, I went to exponential medicine one year oh, nice. and I met, I met once a guy who was, who studied the microbiome and we, we talked a lot. And what I learned is that there are more bacteria on this rock that's spinning around the sun, right? In this one little piece of space, than there are stars in the sky, which is, it's really super vast. And so there's a, you know, so I said to him, I said, you know, well, bacteriology is the new cosmology. And so now we're looking, we're looking inward because, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And because, you know, believe in evolution, you don't believe in evolution, but you know, from the science side of it, we, we evolved with bacteria. We're probably like conglomeration of bacteria that came together. You know, when you think about the primordial goo or all those, I mean, we're getting really weird now, but, but yeah, it, it is, you know, it is weird. I mean, you know, did, you know, when you look at it that way, you know, did we crawl out or were we just made? And we don't know because there's the origin story that, that many of us believe that comes out of a book that was written by men thousands of years ago. There's the origin story that comes out of the Bhagavad Gita, which is very different. And then we have, you know, when you look at the history of religion and how all gods were female before written language, we've always tried to figure out what's out there, mm-hmm. what's next, mm-hmm. you know, and we have a few avatars who'll come through, you know, every generation there's somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, most recent one I think was Sai Baba. Right. Yeah, definitely. But, and then before that was probably Yogananda mm-hmm. here in yeah. America. Yeah. 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 And the thing is, is that, you know, India gave us religion. India gave us spirituality. That's, you know, all religion I think can, can be traced right back to India. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And again, not wanting to step on toes, but there's even yeah. speculation that Jesus spent time with the sages in India. And again, where was he after he overturned the, the, the tables? tables. Yeah. The and then when he showed back up at 30, where yeah. was he? There's, yeah. there's, like record, there's records. We know this. He was a yogi. So it makes it, it makes it made it a lot it made a lot more sense for me when I realized that Christ was probably a yogi more than you know and and again not to step on people's toes but you know we all get to choose how we want to believe this is this is the beauty of belief and I'm not taking anything away from what Christ did because what he did was was phenomenal and we needed that He's a fully awakened being I mean there's no walking with us yeah and, the, and there's some, you know, even in the yogic theories, 40 days is very significant. Yeah. It's a time of, there's seven tissue layers in the body. And it takes a certain amount of time for thought, food, consciousness to move through the tissue layers. And that time is 40 days. And so, you know, if you take a moment and you pause and you start a 40-day fast, what comes through at the end of that is very refined deeply refined and that's we know that he did that and so in yeah. that teaching of 40 days was far before him far before him and yeah. so again like not to step on toes because i actually grew up and and have a, a connection and a relationship to his his teaching and his life in a really deep and profound way oh and, me too yeah 
Yeah. But I think, you know, these, these ideas of marrying these ancient insights with modern science, I think if those ancient sages were alive today, they'd be on it. They wouldn't. Yeah, I think, I think so too. I mean, but then we have, we have the people like, like Joe Dispenza who teaches yoga. He teaches advanced yoga, probably, you know, some of the Kriya breathing techniques. He teaches that and gets people into this, like get get in touch with their super consciousness. And he does these like breathings for pineal gland activation and that sort of yeah. thing. And then mir miracles happen. I mean, serious, miraculous things happen and he's documenting it and he's documenting changes in DNA and, you know, the, the loss of, of disease and really, really profound things that are completely, completely inexplicable mm -hmm. any other way other than yeah. by a miracle. I'm a big fan. So, I love his, I do his meditations myself. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, his stuff is profound. He's got a really great book called it's, it's becoming supernatural where he talks about how to activate the pineal gland. And, and then there's the breaking the habit of being yourself is another one. But one of the things, if you're, if you are a person who really likes yoga, not, not yoga, not Christ, the book I recommend is this book by Yogananda. If you haven't read it. No, I haven't seen that one. Yeah. And so it's called The Second Coming of Christ, The Resurrection of the Christ Within You, a revelatory commentary on the original teachings of Jesus. He goes line by line and it's two volumes. I don't know where the first volume is. I put it around somewhere because I've been reading it. Because I, I know the gospels inside and out, inside and out, because I grew up with them. And to have, look at it, plus he, plus he also wrote a, Yogananda wrote a version of the Bhagavad Gita a translation into yes. English. Hi, and so he, yeah. And so he brings that into this book as well. And so wow. it, it is, I have to, I mean, we're, we really are diverging away yeah, from food as medicine, but, but I want to say <laughs> that connected. No, no, this is so, so what I love about this, this book is that, you know, in the Indian tradition, we have an, originally the vibratory Aum, right? Or Aum, however you say it. And then you have John 1.1 1, 1 that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And mm -hmm. so in this book that I'm, I'm not going to give it away, so I'll <laughs> let you read it, and all the listeners, but in this book, it is the best explanation of that Mm. particular That's sentence wonderful. yeah you know about vibration and god wanting to split it itself apart and be, be able to interact with itself mm -hmm. and spirituality yeah this is i mean the, the teaching this was the thing when i went to india the first time i began to be exposed to these teachings that finally i was like oh I, it's not it's not either or it's yes and and right that, you know that's Brene Brown's work, but like, you know, it's a yes and. And for me, it was never about creating more division. It was about creating, mm -hmm. widening the circle for me, yeah. widening my awareness, widening it and widening it. And as I did that, you know, more insight about just the human condition was present. And it wasn't like I was, it was pleasant through that whole journey either. Let's keep it real. Like sometimes <laughs> people look at me and they're like, she must float on clouds. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, sometimes no. it's really hard, you know, it, spiritual awakening can be, you know, it can take you through a really, really rough, rough, rough time. Yeah. I was an atheist for a long time. 
well, that's a big transition then. It's like, I mean, I, I truly, I mean, I spent, you know, because of, because of the, the way Christianity is, you know, portrayed in America. Right. And, and I am married to a lady and I always had that kind of a tendency and, you know, and so I was rejected by the church because right. of the way Christian, you know, and it's, it's only Christianity. I mean, the Christians in America say that, you know, if you don't believe in Christ, you're, you're going to hell. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. and that was very, in fact, that was the beginning of the division. When yeah. the first time I, and again, we've really digressed here, but when I first we really started, have, but <laughs> what that's why I love this podcast because I, I never, I never script it. And, and I, I just love where we go. But, we go where we go. You know, the first time that someone was preaching during the prayer time and they said, yeah. oh, your dog doesn't have a soul and that's it, was when I started counting the boards on the ceiling. It was that it's moment. Such a, such a disconnect there. It was like, I just, there was a more ancient part of me that was like, all life has vibration. All mm-hmm. life has an intelligence. None of us really know what, what is here to there in between when we take our last breath. Well, we may not even know when we're there. I often joke. I'm like, oh, finally, mm-hmm. when I die, I'll get to know. And I think the big joke is maybe you won't even get to know then. <laughs> You may not, but you know, I mean, Yogananda does, if you haven't read Autobiography of a Yogi, he does explain the astral plane. It is so weird. Yeah. And he talks about it. I mean, that part of that book was like, this is really bizarre. (laughs) And I like, just like kind of, yeah, I mean, I just skimmed right over it. I was like, that, that, you know, like we're going to Haranaloki or something. I was like, yeah, it gets pretty esoteric, no doubt. And you know, there's some some teachers, Shivananda is another teacher who I've always resonated. He was, his story is very interesting. So Shivananda had founded an Ayurveda and yoga and Vedanta study center in Rishikesh, which is really near the base of the Himalayas and mm-hmm. you know, near the beginnings of the Ganges. And it's considered a very sacred and holy pilgrimage site. But his story, if I remember it correctly, very much speaking off the cuff here, is that he was, ra- he was an allopathic physician. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, just like everyone else in the 20s and 30s, went through the educational process. I want to say he was living in Sri Lanka at the time. And he was delivered care and compassion to a saint. And they say that there are these enlightened beings that walk among us without, that no one knows. Was it Babaji? He didn't say. Oh, okay. But, and, and in fact, the theory is that he didn't actually know that this person was awakened or enlightened. Mm-hmm. He just came authentically with his heart. And this awakened being basically said, because of your compassion, because of who you are, you will be given a pathway to deeper knowledge. And he left his medical practice shortly thereafter, spent 10 years meditating and studying, and then started teaching these esoteric metaphysical principles. And he's got a breadth of books and catalogs. I've been to his center in Rishikesh in India. I have some of his books. And, you know, there, there are these deep teachings that we can, again, it's, it can be a little esoteric and not yeah. applicable to our day-to-day life and kind of an indulgence of sorts because it's not practical in, in some way to, to dig into that stuff. But, gosh, I did like 110%. That was really meaningful for me because 
I'd also had some unusual experiences along the way that I couldn't explain. And so, you know, like leave that there, but you know, it is, it is interesting. I think we've all had like weird, like the eighties was like a really weird kind of energetic time. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And there was like a lot of weird stuff happened, like, like miraculously or energetically or however you want to say it. Some weird stuff happened in the eighties spiritually. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And, and, you know, lucky us, lucky us, we, we've survived to, you know, come and talk about it. Right, right. Wow, this has been really great. Yeah, well, we really got a, a nice, interesting conversation. I hope we, yeah. you know, certainly, again, I always like to say, I really do believe that everyone has a journey and yeah. a relationship to their own divine nature. And I do believe that good sleep, social connection, inner study, introspection, social connectivity, all those things, good nutrition, if I didn't say that, that all creates the epigenetics for the genes we want to be on to live our best life. And to me, that means being of service, looking for the other, looking out for each other. And, you know, I can't let this whole podcast pass without just saying like, we're in a time of huge transformation. And we are, I'm really honoring that. And saying, you know, what am I, what can I bring to that conversation that, because I actually did look at a lot of these limiting beliefs and advantages that I had in a really deep way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where am I, where does white privilege come in for me? Which in some ways, when I put the the turban on, you know, I left it behind because now I'm in this weird in-between zone where I don't have that privilege that I had growing up, but I'm not really someone that can fully understand the experience either. But I certainly get people who have an issue with me. So, but anyway, you know, I think all of that is to say that if we activate those genes, we turn on those genes with these epigenetic mechanisms that make us the best version of ourselves, problems are solved in a much more thoughtful, peaceful, easy way. It's not as much of a struggle the natural way to be with each other becomes revealed. It's not like you have to search for how to be a decent human anymore. It's like, oh, I need to look at that. And I have the resiliency to do it. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about the the subject matter. Right. Well, I think this is great because, you know, it's hard to really divorce eating properly, I think, from spirituality. I mean, if you want to feel good, I mean, I think, I think there's, you know, you, you want to eat the right foods, you want to, you know, put the, drink the right, drink the right things and you want to, you know, have the right, you want to move your body and you want to have the right kind of spiritual practice to train your mind. And I've found that, that in growing over the last couple of years, what has happened for me is that the more I become more of a spiritual being and allow myself to become that, the easier it is for me to make the decisions about what makes me feel good. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. That totally makes sense. Yeah. And, that's, and that's in all the ancient teachings. And it's actually in the modern science too. Like there's scientific studies that show that when you cultivate compassion, parts of the brain become more active that give you a natural inclination to be more compassionate to self first. I think we have to be. Of yeah, course. we do. Yeah, that's, that's so important. So 
I wanted to mention to anybody who wants to understand a little bit more about epigenetics, there's a good book by Catherine Shanahan. It's not about veganism or vegetarianism. It's called Deep Nutrition. And I teach out of it in my program when we take women from minimal misery to becoming a minimal mate and living the minimal mate way. But it's uh, Kate Shanahan. It's called Deep Nutrition. She's a doctor. So let's call her by doctor, Dr. Kate Shanahan. And it's a really great book. And it's like, why your genes need good food. I think she's just come out, she just went around the pandemic, she was coming out with another version of it. So before we wrap this up, what I want to know is, how do you work with people now? What do you do? If you're not doing medicine, how are you helping people now? Oh, thanks for the question. So what I'm doing right now is something, it's a really new territory for me, but I'm going to be working with people in a group format to learn more about food as medicine and plant-based nutrition and I'm also working one-on-one -on -one with physicians who want to learn more about Ayurveda. So oh, great idea. Yeah. So this is really exciting time for me. I'm finally like, I had a great conversation with someone the other day that said, can your career be yes and? Meaning it's always just been sort of more of this Ayurveda, natural therapies and allopathy. And it's like, can I, can it be yes and as opposed to one or the other? Yeah. So that's really exciting for me. That's well, that's it, it almost feels like, you know, even I mean, we've been talking about this now for about three weeks, you and I, yeah. and it's almost like, you know, you've gotten some alignment happening and you're exactly. ready to move forward into, yeah. into your next journey, which is, you know, it's starting to make sense. And I, I yeah. love it. I think that's great. So where can people find you? So um, you can find me at my website, Dr. Siri Chun, D-R-S-I-R-I-C-H-A-N-D. And it's two first names. People always ask me, what is the deal with your name? Two first names like Betty Sue or, you yeah. know, Siri Chun. And then Luminous Foods is my social media handle or Dr. Siri Chun. You can find me in both. There's hashtags and or all. I'm on YouTube. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook. So if you Are need you on to TikTok find yet? I am on TikTok. <laughs> Are you really? <laughs> I haven't tried TikTok yet. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I did a fermentation video on TikTok, but you know, oh, that's I mean, great. You know, it's it's a learning curve, but I enjoy, I enjoy being creative. That's been a big part of my personal journey. Yeah, it's funny because I've, you know, I've been watching your photographs for the last since, since six years at least, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's, there's always the way you expose, there's always like brightness to the way you expose, even to the point of your background today. Yeah, exactly. Well, light is, you know, it's so funny you would notice that because light is, natural light is the core part of how I integrate the patterns, colors, and textures of nature. And so I always use natural light in my photography and I do have prints for sale. So that's on my blog oh. and my website. Oh, that's great. Awesome. Yeah. Now, if you have questions about the topics covered in this or any other podcast, I invite you to open a conversation with me via email at info at menopausemovement.com or on Facebook Messenger through my Facebook page at Dr. Michelle Gordon. That's D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-G-O-R-D-O-N. I also want to invite you to join in our next beta group. Here at the Menopause Movement, we are always trying out new methods of teaching and the best ways to get on top of your menopause symptoms. We regularly run beta test groups where we create a learning experience valued at $2,000, but at no cost to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials. To get notified of our next beta group, simply sign up at beta.menopausemovement.com. And thanks so much for being a part of the Menopause Movement. I appreciate you. Thank you.